Welcome to New York Public Health Now, where we talk about the why so you can decide what to do. Hello, I am Dr. Jim McDonald, Commissioner of the New York State Department of Health. So welcome to the 14th floor here in Corning Tower in Albany. And I'm joined today by the Acting Executive Deputy Commissioner, Joanne Morn. Joanne, how are you today? I am doing well, thank you. Yeah, and good to have with us as a guest, Dr. Paul Masters of the Wadsworth Laboratory here at the New York State Department. So good to see you, Dr. Masters. How are you today? Thanks for having me on, Commissioner McDonald. Yeah, and great to have you as well. You know, it's interesting. I've read about your career, which is quite impressive. I would almost dare say legendary. It's it's quite frankly humbling to have intellects as great as you here at the department. Just really want to say that out loud here, which I think is great. So let's get started. All right. Well, I think with that introduction, why don't we start with uh, tell us about yourself. Okay. Well, uh, and thank you for that very generous introduction. Uh, I'm a proud graduate of Yonkers High School. Um, from there, I went to Cornell University and I was a chemistry major. And I discovered toward my senior year that I was, I was most interested in, in the chemistry of living things, uh, fascinated by how proteins and nucleic acids assemble themselves into these um, long polymers. Um, so I then went on to uh, Brandeis University where I got a PhD in biochemistry. And again, my interest sort of, my focus sort of drifted a bit to uh, an interest in molecular biology and viruses. I did two postdoctoral stints where I could combine those two interests, one at, one at the University of California at Santa Barbara and the other at uh, uh, the Roche Institute of Molecular Biology, which was in New Jersey. And then finally, uh, I joined the Wadsworth Center uh, in 1988 to perform basic research in the molecular biology of coronaviruses, uh, which I've done ever since supported by grants from the National Institutes of Health. You're Wadsworth's in-house coronavirus expert, and it's just interesting. I think, you know, I've been a pediatrician over 33 years, and, you know, when I treated children with a cold, I didn't usually find out if they had a coronavirus. It didn't really clinically make that big a difference, but, boy, that changed after the pandemic and underway. (laughs) But I'd kind of like to back it up a little bit and just start with, you know, what is a coronavirus? Well, uh, coronaviruses are are a family of viruses causing respiratory and gastrointestinal diseases in humans and also other animals, and and additionally in birds. Uh, Among the animals, uh, having coronaviruses includes both wild and domestic animals. Coronaviruses have been on the radar of of veterinarians for ages because they, they cause a lot of diseases of, of agricultural importance. But we're most concerned with humans, of course, and, and uh, there are seven human coronaviruses. Four of these are so-called endemic coronaviruses. They've been among us for at least a century, uh, probably more in some cases, and generally cause common colds. Uh, some of them, sometimes that can be serious, go on to pneumonia. Um, uh, one of them causes uh, childhood croup, but generally not life-threatening. However, there are three other coronaviruses that have emerged in the past two decades, and uh, these cause very serious disease. The first of these, some some folks may remember in in 2002-2003, this virus that came to be called SARS coronavirus 1, severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 1, um, caused an epidemic that um, fortunately was, uh, the virus was eradicated by the enforcement of, of strict public health measures. And so that virus is no longer among us, and that's a tremendous victory. Um, about a decade after that, in, in 2012, uh, another um, deadly coronavirus emerged, and that's called uh, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus. And it's a virus that is 
pretty common in camels and jumps to humans sporadically and causes a very severe pneumonia with, with something like a 30% case fatality rate. And for reasons we don't understand, this epidemic is confined to the Saudi Arabian Peninsula and has really not uh, moved elsewhere, fortunately. And then finally, in, in another 10-year gap or so, in 2019, SARS coronavirus 2, the virus that causes COVID-19, emerged, and everybody's familiar with that story. Yeah, absolutely. The last three years have been exceptional, <laughs> right? But you also have been with the department, as you said, since 1988. Can you talk to us about the work that you were doing before COVID? Sure. My focus has always been the, the molecular biology of coronaviruses, uh, and particularly studying a model coronavirus, mouse hepatitis virus, which only infects mice and fortunately not us. And, and so my focus has been on what are these viruses made of? What are all the molecular details of how they infect cells? I'll tell you a bit more about that. I first have to tell you more about coronaviruses. Um, the, these are the, the virions of coronaviruses, that, that is the viral particles, uh, are roughly spherical. They're surrounded by a membrane that they steal from the host cell. And, and they're about 100 nanometers in diameter. What, what does that mean? Um, how small is that? Um, if you lined up 250,000 of them in a row, that would equal about one inch. So that, that's, that's how tiny these things are. The virions, the viral particles, have a relatively small number of proteins, and the, the most prominent among these is a protein called the spike protein that projects from the surface, multiple copies of the spike protein project from the surface of the virion, and give it, uh, to, to some people's minds, uh, the appearance of a corona, and, and hence the name of the family. But this, the, the business of the spike protein is to bind to particular receptors on the on the cells of, of uh, hosts and, and to uh, initiate infection. So the spike protein binds the receptor, undergoes these contortions that allow the, the, um, the guts of the virion to end up inside the cell and initiate infection. And another important protein in the virion is something called the nucleocapsid protein, and that wraps up the genetic material um, of, of the virus, the, the genome of the virus. And unlike us and all living things we encounter, the coronavirus genomes and most viruses have genomes made up of ribonucleic acid, RNA, not DNA. So we're all DNA-based organisms, and so is everything, every living thing you've run into. But um, most viruses use RNA as their genetic material, and this gives them particular vulnerabilities, but also particular advantages. RNA is quite different than DNA. You're familiar with the story of the double helix. RNA can uh, fold up into uh, a whole variety of three-dimensional structures that can be recognized in, in different ways by different proteins. So not only the sequence of RNA is important because it codes for proteins, but also uh, the structures are important. And so what we did uh, relatively early on was we developed the first reverse genetic system for coronaviruses. That, that is a, a system by which we could plant specific mutations into the genetic material of the coronavirus and use this uh, to study basic principles of protein function. How do all these proteins get together to assemble a, a virus? And what roles do other proteins that don't get assembled into the virion play during the course of infection in cells. And we also use this 
genetic system to study RNA sequences and structures in the viral genetic material and, and how proteins interact with those to uh, replicate the RNA, make new copies of RNA, and ultimately recognize the RNA as the thing that needs to be incorporated into virions. So we just want to learn fundamental mechanisms of the viral life cycle so that we can uh, potentially identify molecular targets, weak points against which therapeutic agents could be uh, targeted. Yeah, a wonderful review of the basic science of coronaviruses, by the way. That was that was great. And I, I, But I think it's important to understand you don't just do basic science. You do science that leads to actually things we use. And I want to go back in time to 2020 in the beginning of the pandemic in New York State. And, you know, you have a lot of extensive knowledge about coronavirus research. And yet that had a lot to do when we were jumpstarting New York's COVID response efforts in those critical early days of public health. And I, I know it wasn't just you, but can you talk a little bit about how you and the team at Wadsworth helped when it came to, you know, the clinical sampling and the antibody testing. How did that come together? I mean, the critical thing uh, in the earliest stages of a disease outbreak is to have a test to determine, first of all, who is infected. Yeah, what that's are you dealing the, with, right? Like, you've got to have a test, right? That's, right? that's the diagnostic capability. Right. And secondly, to determine how far the disease has spread. Right. And so that's the surveillance capability. And so in late February 2020, uh, be- before it was clear that um, uh, COVID-19 had even arrived here, um, I was able to advise members of the Laboratory of Viral Disease in the Wadsworth Center, which is directed by Dr. Kirsten St. George. And we worked on what are, what are the best sequences to target by PCR, polymerase chain reaction, to uh, in this test uh, to be developed, and how to ensure that it, it was specific for SARS coronavirus 2 and not for all the other human coronaviruses that are floating around. Right, right. And, and so that, that's critical. And on this, I, I, I worked with, with, with two terrific young scientists in the Laboratory of Viral Disease, Sarah Griesmer and Daryl Lampson. And they're the ones who, you know, after we did all the groundwork, they're the ones who went on to establish a test in the laboratory in, in a, a, a real-time fast turnaround platform that was capable of very high throughput. And as importantly, they validated the test. They went through the whole validation process to ensure that it was accurate and sensitive and specific. And as you know, the Wadsworth Center was the first state public health lab in the United States to have an FDA-authorized test that New York State could use for diagnosis of COVID-19. And this was very important because in the United States, New York City was the epicenter of the outbreak in in the early stages. And I think that's an important point just to drive home is the the coronavirus test, Wadsworth was really the first place to not just develop it, but actually utilize it. I mean, that's translating science into action. And, And, you know, it's funny, you talked about you and your colleagues' work, but you know, it sounded a lot like Star Trek medicine, to be really candid with you. It really sounded very much like the type of stuff you'd see on Star Trek. Because it's just, you know, I'm an old doctor. I know I don't look old. Thank you very much. You know, but and when I was in medical school, I never saw this type of technology being developed. And this is part of the fun thing about leading the Department of Health in New York is we have Wadsworth Lab, which is people like you and your team, which humbly just talk about. This is a test that changed the pandemic for the United States. I don't think people appreciate the significance of this. I, I think it was certainly a great accomplishment early on. And, and to see the way the team worked, I mean, and 
all the members of the Laboratory of Viral Disease, plus volunteers from all over the Wadsworth Center, worked around the clock for many months in all aspects of, of the testing, going from sample accessioning of patient samples to RNA extraction to performing the actual PCR test, and then very importantly to reviewing and reporting the results out, and then answering questions from the public and from healthcare providers. And, and from elsewhere in the department. So, so it, was, it was a tremendous group effort, and the number of people involved was just amazing. There's so much to be proud of based on the work that was done and certainly led the way, not only in our state but across the nation. Um, and as you were talking, can you, just, can you just give us a little bit more? Um, I know for myself I had the opportunity to uh, do work as it related to antibodies right, uh, during our response, but the distinction between the antibody testing and the PCR testing? Oh, certainly. Yeah, I, I neglected to go into antibody testing on the previous question. Uh, so PCR looks for the viral nucleic acid, the viral RNA, and, and, and provides a current infection diagnosis. If you're PCR positive, you are infected. But antibody testing gives a broader view. It tells who has been infected both in the past and in the present. You know, what has your immune system seen? And it, it may also, in the, in the early days, it could also be used to distinguish between uh, individuals who had been vaccinated as opposed to individuals who had been infected. And so I, I was able to help at the start in, in, in setting up antibody testing because I had, uh, in, <laughs> buried in my freezers, purified nucleocapsid protein from the original SARS coronavirus 1. And it turns out that cross-reacts very nicely with antibodies to SARS coronavirus 2. So that got things started initially in the Diagnostic Immunology Lab. And I and Dr. Lily Kuo in the Arbovirus Laboratory uh, immediately went into cloning and production of SARS coronavirus 2 proteins in bacteria and other cell types so we could produce gobs of these proteins for the uh, antibody tests. I did the easy one. I did the nucleocapsid protein, and uh, Lily Kuo did the much more complicated spike protein, the S protein. Both of these were then purified by Dr. Karen Chave in, in the Wadsworth uh, uh, Protein Purification Core, and then sent on to the, uh, to the Diagnostic Immunology Lab for assay development, and they developed a whole uh, range of assays using this uh, microsphere multiplex technology. Uh, which allows you to look at multiple antigens and and incorporate multiple controls in the test at the same time simultaneously. I mean, I find this all fascinating. It just it's so interesting. And I mean, part of me wonders why'd you keep that original coronavirus purified protein in your freezers? I mean, you've been here a long time since 1980, <laughs> and I'm so thankful you kept it in your freezer. But I think it's a good example of like a really good thing that you kept that around. I mean, how did you know we'd need it someday? <laughs> well, we didn't. Yeah. It's <laughs> but, just yeah. good fortune, I and, guess, and, right? Yeah, and, and, and when you go to the trouble of making a, a, such a valuable reagent, you keep it as long as you can. <laughs> so, uh, And yeah. I think that just speaks yeah. to a little bit about just the perseverance of science. And, you know, it's funny. Like, I, don't, I don't know that in science we get as lucky as much as people think we do. I think it's about forethought, perseverance, and planning uh, that puts us in a place where that actually happens. You know, I... Sometimes I say around that a private chance favors the prepared, yeah. and you impress me as someone who were you were prepared. So I think that's to to the credit of you, and but also benefit of the 
larger population. Speaking of the larger population, I got me thinking about antibody testing in general, and it just made me wonder, like, how does antibody testing, how could it help us inform public health decisions at the population level? Antibody testing is the determination of what viral protein or proteins a person's immune system has developed antibodies against. And so, most important, it measures the extent of infection, as I said before, past and present in the population. And more generally, it can give give us information about the degree of immunity in the population. But with coronaviruses, this is a little less clear, um, and it's not known how long the, that immunity lasts. So these are things that are still yeah, being that's really the big question, worked out on it? the run. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it's called a common cold for a reason. But I said one of the things about you know immunity is like. You know, you get long-lasting immunity from some illnesses that'll last you forever. Mm. For coronaviruses, we've never really thought that was the case, you know? And so that's part of why people get colds every year, you know, just as what it it is. It would be very nice to have um, a second-generation vaccine that that protected us against all variants of SARS-CoV-2 and protected us against all the common coronaviruses. And there are people working on that sort of thing. So uh, just as they're working on... vaccine that would uh, cover all strains of influenza virus so that we, we wouldn't have to be boosted as frequently, perhaps. But to get back to antibodies, <laughs> um, I, I, I really need to give credit to Monica Parker and, and Linda Steyer in the Wadsworth Center Bloodborne Viral Disease Lab. Uh, they developed an assay using finger stick collected dried blood spots. So you could get um, a greater participation uh, in in the in the population, uh, if if people knew they just had to get a finger stick and and collect a few drops of blood on a piece of filter paper, as opposed to having their blood drawn, and so Monica and Linda developed a high throughput multiple antigens multiplex um, assay using this, and they they used that assay to conduct a sera survey of greater than fifty seven thousand New Yorkers. Uh, had been uh, surveyed by June of 2020. So this is just, you know, five months into the the pandemic. And the the groups they looked at were members of the community as well as uh, healthcare workers all over the state, in in most counties of the state. And from this, uh, it was concluded that as early as the end of March 2020, over 2 million New Yorkers had been infected with this virus. And furthermore, since a lot of data was also collected anonymously from the participants, the data could be stratified by geography and ethnicity and age and other factors. And and you could use that information to determine how best to to serve various groups within the population of New York State. So um, that's the sort of thing that, that antibody surveillance can do at the population level. So there are so many things that it sounds like you had the opportunity to to, to anticipate or, or to think about in planning. Were there surprises for you as it related to SARS-CoV-2? There were a whole slew of surprises, some of them too technically detailed to go into. But early on, I think I was as surprised as everybody else by how rapidly this thing spread. I mean, I, I like probably most of us, we're watching uh, what was going on in China on the television and saying, that's not going to come here, right? And, wow, it came here, and it came here with a vengeance really quick. 
further into the pandemic, uh, the, the big surprise for me was the, the rapid scientific progress that was made, uh, especially in, in mRNA vaccine development mm, that, yeah. that really was wonderful. Um, and this was made possible by basic science uh, that had been done years earlier. After the emergence of SARS-CoV-2, Jason McClellan at the University of Texas was able to determine the three-dimensional structure of the spike protein in, in you know, tremendous detail by a, a process called uh, cryoelectron microscopy. And just as importantly, he was able to uh, tamper with the spike protein and stabilize it in such a way that it would be much more likely to elicit neutralizing antibodies when used in a vaccine. And then, and then the other folks who deserve uh, great credit and have received it are, are Kathleen Carrico and Drew Weissman, uh, who developed the mRNA vaccine method and who just got the uh, 2023 Nobel Prize in physiology and medicine. I love this basic science history you're giving us, but also just telling us the story behind the scenes of the pandemic. I just think, I don't think it's been widely told how many wonderful things have occurred to make but look normal for us possible, whether it's a vaccine, whether it's a test. And, and all this to me is just interesting. I, I'm just curious, you know, I don't know if you expected a coronavirus to be the cause of the next pandemic. And I'm just curious if that surprised you at all. I mean, I, you know, to say this, like living through H1N1, I think a lot of people are thinking if we we're going to have a pandemic based on the 1919 flu pandemic, it was going to be a flu virus or something that would have caused a pandemic. But were, were you surprised it was a coronavirus that caused this pandemic? Um yeah, frankly, I was. I, I, I would have put my money on influenza also. <laughs> and, and you know, we're still looking at, uh, you know, H5N1, uh, bird flu. Yeah, we and, are. And we, we pay attention about, to that one. You know, yeah. how, many, how, how much does that have to mutate in order to cross over to human populations? And, and, and there, you know, people have mapped out pretty well um, uh, how much... Uh, influenza virus, for bird influenza, has to change in order to be able to infect humans. But uh, yeah, these things do come upon us as as a surprise, and and uh, it's important to be prepared. As we think about future, you know, continuing down that road and thinking about the potential for other pandemic threats, how optimistic are you about our continued ability to develop tests or rapidly develop a test? Um, to to rapidly develop a test, I'm I'm extremely optimistic. I mean. It, to my mind, it, it, it's pretty much a certainty. The, the, the technology for test development has, has just proceeded by leaps and bounds, and, and, um, and uh, the, the, uh, the range and the, uh, the, the uh, ability of, of testing technologies um, it just keeps increasing day by day. What I'm more concerned about is our ability to maintain preparedness. We can't afford to get complacent and say, well, the pandemic was here, and now it's over. We're all okay. We, we need an ongoing investment in public health, and part of maintaining preparedness is uh, a need for constant surveillance. And a, a great example of that is the New York State Wastewater Surveillance Program that's being conducted by Kirsten St. George in the Laboratory of Viral Disease and, and multiple collaborating laboratories throughout New York State. And they're monitoring SARS-CoV-2 sequences in sewage, at a depth at which they can monitor, uh, you know, what variants are there, and and, and what the geographic distribution of, of uh, different strains of the virus are throughout New York State, and also they can, they can be 
because of high throughput sequencing, they're able to to look at the uh, whether a new previously unknown variant is emerging. And, and I think the same technology can be expanded to many other viruses and with great benefit to us. You know, as we get ready to close out our episode and, you know, I, you know, one of the things I think about with this whole idea of a podcast for us was talk about the why so people can help decide what to do. But I think one of the things I'm taking away from our conversation is when you talk about the why of just testing in general, I, I hope that our listeners can understand there's a great deal of molecular biology and sound science that makes our testing very purposeful, very reliable, and, and very much something people can trust. And I think that just speaks to just understanding just the power of science and the power of just, quite frankly, continuing to ask the questions, be prepared about you know, why you can trust the testing uh, that we do here at the Wadsworth uh, laboratory and, and the impact it has throughout the United States. So as we get ready to close, Dr. Masters, it's been great having our conversation with you. Do you have any final thoughts for us today? Well, yeah, I, I'd like to say that I've been very lucky to to have my spend my career at, at the Wadsworth Center. I, I've been able to work alongside colleagues performing cutting-edge research in the biomedical sciences and in the environmental health sciences. And at the same time, I was working alongside outstanding public health scientists who are developing and employing state-of-the-art methods to address the major health challenges of our time. And this, this, this is a unique model for a state public health lab. You don't see this anywhere else in the country. This integration of diagnostics and research, this model was framed by Augustus Wadsworth, who was the first director of the lab way back in 1914, over, over a century ago. And I think it will continue to serve New York State very well into the future. Thank you, Dr. Master. So, so Joanne, I learned a lot today. How about you? Oh, always. Absolutely, Dr. Masters. It's been a pleasure. And thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your history. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, Dr. Masters, thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to have you here. As we close out our episode, we would love to hear from you, our listener. If you have an idea for topics we should talk about on our podcast, let us know by email. Podcast at health.ny.gov. Let me repeat the email address public health now podcast at health.ny.gov keep an eye out for the latest new york public health now episode on your favorite podcast player like apple podcasts overcast spotify youtube and google podcasts tap the subscribe button or follow button to be notified when a new episode drops and to easily find our podcast search by our podcast title new york public health now or keyword nysdoh thank you very much i hope you have a good rest of your day 